Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. Coming up this fortnight, it's all about Belgium with the Tour of Flanders, E3 Classic and Ghent Wevelgem all broadcast live. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+, including the E3 Classic on the 24th of March, Ghent Wevelgem on the 26th and the Men's and Women's Tour of Flanders on the 2nd of April. Along with all the live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens so you never need to miss a key moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist15. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Um, it's with a heavy heart that um, I say welcome back, looking at Anthony, knowing that the last time I'll be welcoming him back. That's sad, isn't it, mate? You're, it is sad. All good things must come to an end. How many have we done? This is, must be 15, 20 episodes? I'd say something like that. 15, 20 banging episodes, I think, is the superfluous or superlative that you need to chuck in there. Obviously, you can go and listen to Anthony on his own podcast. He's always going to be there. So it's I don't know you what's what's the phrase you you gain a friend and lose a colleague I don't know something like that I might even get you across James onto the Roman podcast Go on then yeah you can ask me loads and loads of insightful questions and I'll just kind of go uh yeah I don't really know I'll do that thing where people pause for ages you know when you ask them like such a deep question that it's actually just throwing them and they're just like I don't know how to answer that and then you get some lovely dead air but you're thinking, aren't you, as a journalist, like, yeah, I've got them, I've got them on the ropes, but it doesn't make for good radio. But I've been waiting like 20 episodes for the conclusion of your moving house drama to play out, and I feel robbed that I won't be here to witness it. So that's why I suggest you coming across onto my show. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to come and uh, chat putting up shelves and flat pack baby furniture, because that, <laughs> that is my life. Although, let's not go into this now, but I have partially moved house and it has been incredibly stressful and the room that you're looking at behind you is actually a different room. So there you go. Um, so it was worth moving, wasn't it? Because I've clearly gone somewhere different because you haven't noticed. I didn't notice, no. And it's, I think it's the first <laughs> time probably I haven't asked in 15 episodes. I just kind of got bored and fatigued of asking. But I know, what I do want to ask actually is, do you own a Brompton? I don't own a Brompton, which is a massive misstep because on today's episode, we are going to be speaking to the CEO of Brompton, Mr. Uh, Will Butler-Adams, and he's been CEO for 10, 15 years, I think, and he was an engineer before that, so he's deep in the Brompton, and I know that you have a Brompton, and I guarantee you guys are going to be discussing them, and I've only ridden one, I'm afraid. So go on, tell me, tell me about yours, and I will sit here in awe and jealousy. 
you don't think you need a Brompton until you get a Brompton and then you can't imagine what your life was like before you had the Brompton. It's a weird... That's such a Brompton owner thing to say. Literally, you sound like you sound like a dog owner. You know when dog owners are like, oh yeah, you just don't know. You don't know what it's like to own a dog unless you've got a dog. I use it everywhere. I use it, I'd say I use it four or five times a day. Like I won't walk like five minutes. I'm just like, whoop, ping the Brompton out. I, I just, I'm addicted to it. Well, I mean, I can, yeah, I can totally subscribe to it because there have been times where we've had them on test and um, we had the titanium one not so long ago and that is an absolute cracker because it's actually, it's probably like, I don't know, eight kilos, eight and a half kilos, something like that. And the electric Brompton is brilliant because you can ride, you can definitely ride that around your office and it definitely doesn't matter if you crash into the desks, that's all fine. But yeah, basically small wheeled bikes are pretty jokes. I think they're, I think they are the future. I don't know why we don't ride more of them. I went out to China. I'm not sure I've ever told you the story. I went out to China uh, 2015 to a fair called the Canton Fair, which is a trade fair. And they were just starting to debut electric bikes. And I rode one of these small wheel electric bikes and I sat on it. I rode it around the car park and it was like strapping yourself to a rocket. Like there was no regulators for 20K an hour on it. It was like 60K an hour down. And I remember a buddy of mine is an entrepreneur and he was looking for new ideas. And he said to me, look, you've been in cycling game a long time. What do you think about these electric bikes? I was like, nah, they'll never catch on. <laughs> I just don't see them working. It's so funny you say that because I've had this, I've had that same conversation with, or had that same conversation with people years ago. Because when electric bikes first came out, particularly when they had, and they still do, but like big hub motors. So you haven't got a bottom bracket sort of mounted motor, you've got a hub motor, right? And they had these huge hubs because you had to have all of the coils and turns and magnets in there. And you're just like, it's the same with electric cars. You're like, yeah, good idea, mate. But, you know, that's never going to work, is it? Because motors are crap. And, and lo and behold, lo and behold, they do. So I'm going to eat my words and we're probably going to eat a few more because we are going to uh, welcome onto the show uh, Will Butler-Adams. And we've got a lot of questions for him, not just about bicycles because he's also kind of, he's positioned himself sort of semi-politically um, as well. So be prepared for some serious insights, get the kettle on, sit down and welcome to the show, Will Butler-Adams. Boom, you're a pro, James. I wouldn't have recognized you 15 episodes ago. <laughs> I know. There we go. We'll keep that bit in as well. Thank you, Anthony. High praise. And now welcome to the show, Will Butler-Adams. Welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Mr. Will Butler-Adams. Brompton CEO. Is Brompton possibly Britain's most popular bike? I don't know. I see so many of them. You must have loads. I don't know. I mean, they're certainly well used and they last a long time. So that means that you might be... uh, seeing somebody who bought their bike 20 years ago or seeing somebody who bought their bike two months ago. And that's the aim. We don't want them getting stuck in uh, sheds in the back of the house or in the back of the garden. We want them being used. And um, yeah, it's, it's a complete joy to go anywhere and see somebody on our bikes. It's what makes everything worthwhile. Absolutely. I have a Brompton folded up at the bottom of my stairs as we speak. And if I'm going out for... Bloody brilliant. The car doesn't move from the driveway. The Brompton's all that gets used for groceries, commuting. But I'm always struck by, for me, the real magic of Brompton. It's it's not the fact they fold because loads of bikes fold. It's whatever sleight of hand you guys were able to perform with marketing where it is socially acceptable to bring a Brompton into a nice restaurant. Like the places I've dropped it off, at the front of a nice restaurant, I've dropped it in nightclubs, I've dropped it in cafes, bookshops. You and I both. Bloody brilliant. 
Bring it on. But it's so socially acceptable to go in. Like if I walked in carrying a skateboard on my back, which is, you know, roughly the same footprints, people would look at me like, are you mad? But the Brompton is like a status symbol, I guess. That's been a hard won battle. I mean, I, I joined 21 years ago. I'm six foot four. I was the freak, you know, long legs, like circus type weirdo, small wheels. And then you start sort of wandering into smart places, nightclubs. hadn't met my wife by then. <laughs> I was in nightclubs. And, you know, but I was determined and I was so proud of the damn thing. And there was no way I was going to have it left on the street to get nicked. I think there is a real value that our customers associate with their bikes. So they're like, no, 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 I've got to take it with me. I mean, this is my Brompton. So it has to come in. And then, you know, it, and it wasn't, it wasn't an open invitation. Over time, that has come. I had various, I had to walk away with my tail between my legs. And I've once or twice had to uh, hide my Brompton with no lock because I've never had a lock. Sort of shuffle it in amongst all the other bikes and hope someone thinks there must be a lock in there somewhere because there isn't. And hope and pray when I come back, it hasn't been nicked. So it's, it's been a journey. But it's like all things in life. Once things become normalized, people accept it and they discover it's not so difficult. I mean, you know, people have been taking cases into restaurants or wherever they've gone for years. No one's worried about that. And, you know, why should they care about a thing that happens to be a bicycle that's about the same size? And, and it, as you say, it's virtually socially unacceptable not to allow it in because it's, you know, it has a sort of positive vibe about it. But still, that, that is true, but there is something specific to a Brompton, unlike any other bicycle too, because I know lots of people, you know, loads of people commute. You guys are based mm. in London. I used to live in London. There are so many bikes on the roads every day. But I think the image of particularly a high-powered high business person with a Brompton is something almost to be revered, to be respected, whereas, like Anthony said, come in with a skateboard, but you're probably not going to close that deal, but maybe even rock <laughs> up on a mountain bike or in Lycra off your road bike, and you're still going to get like slightly dubious reactions. I feel like Brompton has created its own category, which has come out of a slightly strange and esoteric part of British cycling, which has been small-wheeled bicycles, because you had Dr. Alex Moulton with his Moulton bikes. They yeah. look like folders, but they never really folded. And you've got the guy that started Bickerton Portable from yeah, yeah. back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, of course. And these are kind of weird savant-style inventors, and I believe that the founder of Brompton, Andrew Ritchie, was a similar sort of, well, he is, he is, he's still alive. He is. A similar is, kind of, yeah, um, bit of a mad inventor. I would suggest that you've taken Brompton into this category where it is a very socially accepted but also respected kind of almost accessory as much as anything else. How have you done that? What was that turning point in the life of Brompton to take it from a fold-up bike from 1975 into, yeah, you've sold your millionth bicycle last December. Which is mad. Well, it wasn't conscious. Um, I'm not that smart or sophisticated, but I pretty much reflect, and I've been here a long time, so I've reflected a 28-year-old Brompton rider, and I'm now a 48-year-old Brompton rider. So I've been the Brompton customer at different stages. I've had children. They were small. They've had their bikes, you know, and um, what struck me was the extent to which this thing, this peculiar bike, really made living in London a joy. And it was the flexibility. And it was the ability, if I couldn't be asked, I could jump on the tube or I could jump in a cab or you know, I could take a train and go out of London. It, it, it's sort of unbelievably flexible. 
I never worried about it getting nicked. I go to friends for dinner, whatever. And I knew London when I had been there for 18 months, more than friends of mine that had been there for 10 years because I'm on a bike and, and, and going, cutting through the back of the city. But I suppose in terms of giving us a voice, I started meeting our customers, obviously. And the customers weren't just UK. They were customers in Japan. They were customers in the US. But you couldn't define a Brompton customer. And it was driven by, in those early days, people who were prepared to be different, but recognized the value. But it was not a 55-year-old suited and booted city guy at all. It was miles more random and quirky than that. But the unifying sort of thump between the head was this thing made people happy. And that is quite cool. And if you can, rather than trying to do it yourself, if you can take the voice of your customer and augment it, if you can lift it up and let them tell your story, people start believing you. If you jump up and down all day long and you work at a company and telling everyone, no one goes, yeah, cheers, mate. You know, that's obvious. They don't believe a word of it. But once you start allowing your customers to do that, then you build a momentum. And there is something, you know, weird about the Brompton. So people were slightly proud that they'd worked it out because to look at it, you think, "Mm, like semi-dork. But it was so cool that who cares? And, And then once you get it, you're like, no, this is cool. But that transformation took a while, but it wasn't some amazingly clever strategic plan. We've mostly cared about the bike and looking after the customers we had. We haven't spent ages and we still don't spend a great deal of our money on marketing. I've got the the black on black. I like to describe it to friends. If Batman had a Brompton, this is like Batman's Brompton. It's so cool. The black on black, the black, like the chrome is all blacked out. I'm sure you know the one. But I brought it last week. I traveled from Dublin to London. And I just walked through Dublin airport as, and I carried my Brompton as a carry-on and I got to security and it doesn't fit through the x-ray machines anymore. So the guys at Dublin airport- Well, hold on a minute. Hold on. We need to have a chat about this. Have you got an SP0 or have you got an SP6? Do you know what the seat pillar is? Uh, I don't know. Well, carry on with your story. I butted in. <laughs> okay. That was, a, that was a geeky question. I appreciate it, but I will check after the podcast. Uh, so yeah, Dublin, the Brompton didn't fit through the x-ray machine in Dublin. So they just kind of looked at it. They swabbed it with something, and which I guess checks for explosives. And then they just kind of looked at each other, looked at me, and just said, go on, in a very laid back Irish lack security sense. So brilliant. Got onto Aer Lingus. The air hostesses couldn't have been more helpful. They were amazing. They let me just put it above my seat. Got off the far side. I only had a carry on. Flicked the Brompton out. Cycled back from the airport when all the other plugs were getting onto tubes. I was like, this is the coolest thing Oh, it's ever. the coolest, it's coolest But coming experience. back the other way, I got to Heathrow and I rocked up uh, through security. Yeah. British are a little bit more organized than the Irish are. So I got to Heathrow it wouldn't go through the x-ray machine again in Heathrow. They what? looked at me and it's like, you can't bring that on as a carry-on. And I said, look, I brought it through Dublin. And they're like, don't get me started on the security in Dublin. <laughs> so I said, can you not just swab it? And he said, well, swabbing it only tells if there's explosives in it. Like, what if you have a concealed weapon in there? What if it can transform into, you know, a spear? And I was like, well, I don't know. They swabbed it in Dublin. And he's like, no, you need to check it. So, That anecdote was me in a long-winded way. Like, what's the travel policy in airlines for it? Can we use it as a carry-on? Can we not? Well, I'm taking it. I mean, I'm I'm going out to see our team in the US um, on Monday. So, yeah, I'm going carry-on. But 
you see I've got a telescopic seat pillar. Then I take the entire saddle out and that allows, I think that allows you to get it through the x-ray machine. Ah, So it may well be that because you've still got the saddle on, you're causing trouble. But I mean, things may change and they might come up with a new one that they hadn't thought about the Brompton when they're doing their security design and therefore it can't quite fit through. But I I mean, I've been flying for 20 years and taking my Brompton on carry-on for probably about 17 of those. It took me about three years to have the courage to risk it. But since then, it's been happy days. And, and I've had, I had a brilliant one. I was coming out of Singapore, hopped on my Brompton, whizzed off down this road. <laughs> and there's only one road in and out of the, uh, the airport in Singapore. Turns out, unbeknown to me, this guy starts flashing at me, jumping up and down, peeping his horn. Then he winds his wind. Oh, you've got to get off. You got, it's, it's illegal. And obviously in Singapore, when they say illegal, they mean illegal as opposed to over here. We say illegal. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and so I'm furiously pedaling and he was jumping up and down. And it turns out it actually is illegal. So you can't actually leave the airport at the time. I think now they have now got the park connector in there. So, um, but the joy of just coming off a plane, unfolding a bike and pedaling off magic. is extraordinary. That is, yeah, that is. I mean, that that in of itself is the future that we should all be. I feel like for that very reason, all bicycles should fold in some manner, so you can take them onto any kind of public transport. Absolutely gutted over the summer to see that Eurostar stopped taking bikes up until I know recently. They've now reinstated, but you could still take a Brompton. So big plus point there. Well done, well done, France. They're up for it. We're uh, we're terrible with sorting out our end. But the thing that strikes me about the Bromptons every time I see it is it's just the same bike. How wrong you are. I know I'm wrong, because I know there are so many variants. I'm, and I'm, It's more than it's that. More, it's, it's so many more things as well. And I know you've got all, there's been all kinds of um, different variations on the theme over years. And I know that there are subtle changes that go on yes. um, model year to model year. But fundamentally, the design hasn't changed a huge, a huge amount, right? So how do you, I think you've been a CEO for coming up for 15 years and Brockton for maybe yeah. longer than that as an engineer. How do you keep getting excited about a design that's essentially the same oh thing? God. And how? But, but oh, it's no. Not. But how do you, from the outs, from my lay perspective, what keeps you kind of ticking over? But more to the point, how do you keep your staff excited about something that, you know, if you look at specialized bicycles, they will just go scrap all of last year's bikes, two-year design cycle, and we're going to make something completely new. And that, I imagine... But they're in the fashion industry. <laughs> we're in the engineering industry. So how, yeah, how do you keep... It's a completely different world. So the bike has changed beyond recognition in my engineering mind. When I joined, we used to make models using laminate and glue, and we'd file it. Now we have 3D printers. I mean, FEA, finite element analysis, didn't exist. Uh, certainly not that we could afford to do it at work. You needed to go to a university with a computer the size of a room to have the power to do FEA. Now we have 80 engineers, repeat, 80 engineers working on the bike using computers that are so ludicrously powerful. It's insane what we can see, what we can do, what we can model. We have test facilities that are off the chart. We are just on an absolute roller coaster ride. You may not see it. I mean, the the sort of clearest indication of that was our T-line that we launched. Now, that is a completely new bike. There is not a component virtually on there that hasn't been totally redesigned from the bottom up. And we're using titanium, which is a hard metal to work with. We're using a manufacturing process that's not used in the industry. And in a way that it's completely unique because no one in the industry is making a bike out of titanium like that. And we introduced electric drive five years ago. We've now got 20 software electronics engineers in the company 
developing learning insight. I mean, this, this stuff we can do, which was unthinkable 15 or 20 years ago, is insane. And then you introduce sustainability, net zero, lithium-ion batteries. Oh, I mean, motors, inverters, controllers. It's just awesome. But it is not about flash, sexy, every other year, new, best thing ever. Because that's just, in my humble opinion, a lot of it is bullshit. You look at the car industry, look at people who are making really amazing, massive changes. It's evolution. It's getting deeper into the engineering, taking what you've got, making it better and better and better and better, rather than new and improved every five minutes, like a sort of jack-in-the-box. That's not us. We are deep engineering. The waste is such a big game changer. Like my dad had a Brompton, like it's probably 20 years old. And I got my own Brompton about 18 months ago. And the nature of the Brompton, you know, you're riding it, you're carrying it down the stairs into the tube, you're picking it up, you're carrying it into a restaurant. Like I ride mine a lot when I go to Girona, I stay a little bit outside town and I ride my Brompton into the town if I'm going for dinner. Anyone who's a Brompton user will know you're folding it up and you're carrying it quite a bit. The waste innovation from the old one that my dad used to my new one, there's no comparison. The old one would, you'd have one arm longer than the other after carrying it around for half an hour. It was really difficult to, to, to carry unless, you know, I, I would say I'm relatively strong and I can only imagine for a slight person, a female carrying, that was an impossibility. The new one, game changer. You can carry it all day long. And it's also about three times as strong and it's stiffer than the original one. So even though, like, like we said, the product has changed and is changing permanently. The design that Andrew pulled off in 75 was awesome. But the bike itself is changing all the time. And, you know, there's no doubt our demographic has got a lot younger. The person who breaks the Brompton, and it will break eventually, isn't the 55-year-old person heading off to use their bike every now and again. It's the 28-year-old rower who, you know, has just got a job in London. They're doing 10 miles each way. They're jumping over the curves. They're ramming it through the potholes and they weigh, you know, 94 kilos. They're the people that are going to break it. And we have a lot of those people now riding our bike. So technology has allowed us to deliver a better bike and a stiffer bike and a lighter bike whilst still accommodating those, you know, hardcore bike breakers and it crashes pretty well i have tested that quite robustly 15 points of guinness coming home thinking i'm riding the city center Chris. 15 i think that's a bit of exaggeration yeah. it was a long day i think i once got to 10 and that was the game over for me just <laughs> yeah. heavy stuff i had a few slide outs on it when the laws of gravity are suspended when you have that much alcohol you're like i could definitely take this corner faster that's <laughs> like boom down we go with the brompton still alive and kicking good no they are absolute feats of engineering and you mentioned um the t-line there so that's uh, any listeners that aren't familiar that's that's a titanium framed brompton um which i've seen and ridden and is exceptional and is actually strangely one of the cheaper titanium bicycles in on the market actually um because tire bikes tend to be very expensive but that's made the frames made up in up north in sheffield yeah sheffield. um yeah. whereas you know, a lot of the Brompton stuff is, is still made in um, in London in Ealing. Yeah. But we've now seen um, as an industry and, you know, as Western Europe, a complete shift and sort of destruction and rebuild of supply chains. And so some of that does affect you. 
um, despite the fact that you engineer and make so much stuff at home, how has it affected you? And where do you kind of see things going? Because is there going to be more disruption on the horizon? And how might that kind of affect the end consumer? And I'm kind of coming at this from maybe more of a road bike point of view, which is the common complaint amongst all of my roadie mates is why are bikes getting so expensive? With my journalist hat on, it's because it's becoming more expensive to buy the parts to make the bikes. How true is that? And where do we go from there? So as you rightly say, we, we're much more of an engineering business that makes a bike than a bike business. So we go further back into the supply chain. So our derailers, our own design, even our internal hub gears, our own design. We, we're deeply involved. Our gear triggers are our own design and we assemble those. I think the industry, and this is me talking with really not a lot of knowledge because I'm looking from the outside in, but I have a bit of knowledge about it. The sort of drive, the gear system is a bit of a sort of closed up shop. You know, I mean, Shimano really, really look like they have got the world in the palm of their hand. There isn't a huge amount of competition. And that's never healthy anywhere because that doesn't drive the most efficient and the most best value outcome. And, you know, for us, we just can't help because we're interested to try and take these things on ourselves. When you break the, product down into its constituent parts, it shouldn't be that expensive. And I do think that the road industry, in its normal sense, is slightly obsessed by weight. I mean, Anthony is just saying the weight of the Brompton matters. It matters because it's on the end of your arm. <laughs> the weight of a bike for 95% of the owners does not matter. They matter. The person who puts their bum on the bike matters. Start with yourself and you know, shed a kilo rather than spending, I mean, some of the stuff that's on bikes is so preposterous and, and as a result, so preposterously expensive. It's not adding real value. And we are very much a form follows function. Our chain tensioner is glass filled nylon because it's brilliant. It lasts for 10 years. It's, it's robust. It's good value. It's a great material. But for some reason in the road cycling, if you had any sort of glass field, like, ooh, what? Ooh, dearie me. Oh, that looks cheap. Oh, we don't have that on our bike. But it works. It's brilliant. It's light. It's robust. So I think somehow there's a sort of magic that's got washed up in the industry. And maybe as a result of some of this shaking out, we'll go back to what we really want. We want efficient transfer of energy between your legs and the wheels. That's what you're after, really. And you know a bike. When you get on a bike and you ride a bike and you feel that efficiency, you just feel it. And it feels the handling is beautiful and you put your foot down and it goes. And that is what we're after rather than the slightly overhyped. And then you suddenly start getting into incredibly expensive things. And, and really, where is the deep value in that? Not sure. There's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. 
But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling, with Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, Then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour. And you can find it in all the usual places. How do you see the electric side of the business developing? Because when I think about places I would ride my Brompton to, I probably have a limiter on that where I go, I'll ride into the city from my house, which is probably seven kilometers, so a 15 kilometer round trip, no problem. But if someone said to me, hey, I'll meet you for a coffee and it's 20 kilometers away, at that point, I'm probably thinking, you know what, I'm going to take a road bike. Mm-hmm. Does the addition of the electric Brompton, you know, how are you guys looking at that? Is that me now choosing the electric Brompton instead of a road bike for that 20K commute? So the thing about the Brompton is it's surprisingly flexible for a whole range of different user cases. And the electric, all we're trying to do is find ways to give a wider audience a reason not to say no. And it's quite varied. So the electric for a lot of people is about hills. It's not about distance. It's about hills. It's about sweating. It's like, I'm knackered. It's the end of the day. I'm not going to ride that. It might be the fact that, you know, five kilometers, maybe eight, feels like a bit of a schlep. Suddenly you get on the electric, woo, this is a laugh. Oh, now we're going. This is just completely awesome. So like you're whizzing along having fun. But then if you're doing the sort of user experience that you're doing with your Brompton, where you're carrying it a lot, you know, really the electric is heavy. It doesn't work for that. We're not there yet. It's just just too heavy. So the electric user is likely to be using it from home to somewhere going a further distance or from home to the train station, folded up on the train, off at the other end, but not up, 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 down, fold, unfold, carry, dee, dee, dee. Because, you know, everything's a compromise. You can't have, I mean, there's physics and, and, and maths involved. But it is definitely opening up our market. And we're never going to be as big a percentage of users with our electric as a normal bike, the industry as a whole, simply because you have to carry our bike. So we might get to 25% electric use, whereas the industry as a whole might get to 50 or even 60. Um, technology's coming, but, you know, you still need windings and you need you know, magnets and copper, and it's just not going to be for nothing. But it's everything we're doing is finding ways to engage a wider audience. And we're not interested in cyclists. We're interested in people who know how to ride a bike. That is a much bigger opportunity. That's like 95% of the population in the UK, of which 5% are cyclists. And our industry is getting obsessed with the 5%. Don't get me wrong, I'm in the 5%. 
But if we're going to really change the world and shift how people live and build a society that's more sustainable, we've got to give up the easy sell and start thinking about how we engage these people who all, all of them had their parents running behind them, teaching them how to ride a bike, but somehow they're no longer cycling. When I think about cycling, I can't think of anything healthier, more sustainable, brilliant for town plan. And it's just a vehicle to connect people. And, you know, it's connected us and we all love it. What worries me a little bit about electric bikes, it's it's the cobalt batteries. And the idea that it's possible to ethically source cobalt batteries seems to be a bit of a misnomer. We're seeing horrible stuff going on. How do you reconcile these two? You can't reconcile it, but chill your boots. You've got to take life as a journey. You can't go from zero to perfection in one step. Which one are you going to do? I can carry somebody, a human being that weighs 90, 100 kilos on a bicycle across the city, five, seven, 10 miles, depends how you want to go. And I can do it with a combined weight of bicycle and battery at 16 and a half kilos, the whole bang shoot. Then you stick the human being on, that's 116 and a half kilos. Oh, but the other option is the super green, we're all going to sort of say we've saved the world, electric car. Oh, yeah, that's the solution. Yeah, that weighs um, 2,500 kilos before you even put the person in it. You are not carrying a person in an electric car. You're carrying an electric car in an electric car. <laughs> it is a joke. So put it into perspective. If we can get the world in cities moving around on electric bicycles rather than electric cars. That is a massive step forward. Is it perfect? No. But compared to 2,500, think how much cobalt's in that. Never mind all the bloody particulates that come off the tire and everything else. Nothing in the world is perfect. In time, we will find different battery technology. In time, we will find other solutions. We've done it for generations as we've developed and found and solved the world's problems. But this is a no-brainer. The most efficient mode of transport ever invented is the bicycle. So let's use it where it's appropriate. I'm not going to cycle to Japan. It's just going to take me too long. I go in what's called an aircraft. But similarly, I'm not going to fly or drive five miles across a city. You'd be a muppet to do that <laughs> because it takes you ages and it drives you potty. And it's not a great deal of fun. I, I'm totally with all that, um, except for Anthony will always generate particulates because he is an incredibly strong racer, um, and even on a Brompton, he can shred a tyre. But I'm, <laughs> I'm totally with you. I, it, the kind of history, the social mobility, literal, that the bicycles offered people um, in the 125, well, 165 years probably since um, Starley had the um, paint on the on the safety bicycle is astounding. And there was a there was a big uptick in the literal blending and crossing of the gene pool in Britain for one place, um, particularly amongst the working classes. You couldn't afford horses, and so you could only walk places. And if you could only walk five miles in a day, then that meant you married the girl or the guy that was five miles down the road. Then the bicycle came along, and suddenly people could get places. This is brilliant insight. I love that. And I, and I, just, and I feel that there is something on the horizon, almost within touching distance, about the bicycle solving so many problems again. And so much of that, and I know we're being so desperately London-centric here, but it would be the same for Anthony in Dublin or anyone in a big city. Yes. It's the key to unlocking so many problems in big cities where people want to live. But yet we haven't done it. So my question is, what, what, what do we need to do? What are we missing? What trick are we missing? Because we have the we're tools. Not, we're, not, we're not missing. We've just got to be patient. And 
I've been 21 years and London has transformed beyond anything we could imagine. What's happened in Paris in the last four years is, is breathtaking in terms of political leadership, impact, and something that I thought would take 15 years has happened in four. You know, Annie Hidalgo has put in 650 kilometers of segregated cycle lane. She's taken out 80,000 car parking spaces. If you go to Paris, it is just transformed the city, the happiness, the vibe, the energy, everything. It's doable. And the thing, there are two massive sort of macro trends at play here. One is clearly global warming. This is not a joke. It's real. We're facing it every day. But the bigger one, because the trouble with global warming is always a bit too far away. And the politicians, you know, they're all saying the right stuff, but it's somebody else's problem. And yes, we had a hot day, but, you know, really, it'll be okay. And you can explain it away. It's happening, but somehow it's not urgent enough. The one that I think is probably even more relevant is health. We have chronic health problems in our cities. And this is not a UK thing. This is global. It's not a Western thing. It's global. And that is costing governments today billions they cannot afford. And it's not just physical health. It's mental health. So redesigning our cities around the human being to give the human being the best experience possible, which you would have thought as a civilized apex you know, thing on planet Earth. We'd have created a place where most of us live to be the most wonderful place to live, but we haven't. It's actually the city is one of the worst and most unhealthy places to live. And that's what's happening now. We are seeing this realization by politicians that active travel, and we include walking in here, has a massive impact on that bill, that billion upon billion pound bill that we've got to sort out pretty damn quick. Otherwise, you know, countries are going to go bust trying to look after and care for their unhealthy citizens. So this, I, I like this. This is a compelling, an incredibly compelling argument. And it naturally strikes a chord with me. And I, and I, I believe you when, yeah, I think there is a shift in the political agenda, which is really furthering bikes. And for whatever you want to say about Boris Johnson, <laughs> he was a bit, or Ken Livingston before him, it comes from across different parties. You know, these are, these are champions in a weird way of, of cycling, particularly a weird way with Boris, but anyway. But I still wonder at, in terms of the UK, the rest of the population and kind of getting on board with it, because we are still a very car-centric society. And let's not even talk about America and how they would go from block to block mm-hmm. on a Brompton. What would you say, for example, to... Janet Street Porter or Professor Robert Winston, two famous people who are vocally against bicycles. And I've even seen a piece that Janet Street Porter um, created where she is stood on cycle path. This is a few years ago saying this cycle path is actually causing pollution because it's it used to be a bike lane and now it's a pipe path. And that means there's congestion where there didn't used to be. And it's the static traffic with their engines running that's causing pollution. So actually, bicycles are to blame. How on earth do you come back from that? It's such a crazy argument, but so difficult to deconstruct. But yet I see it as this big cultural, social stumbling block between us and cycling. It's not. It's not. Because you've got to remember that in London, and most boroughs in London, less than 50% of people own a car less than 50% of people own a car in London. You've just had some of the most radical change in a capital city on a par with London and Paris. 
And everybody predicted that Annie Hidalgo would be voted out. She wasn't. She was voted in again. Because the quiet majority, they want this. And that's what we need to focus on. Don't focus on the loud minority. You will always find them. Look at the real people who are bringing up their children, who are seeing health problems, who experienced lockdown and had this moment of experiencing what life could be like without that tremendous congestion, where the air was cleaner, people could feel it, and they want that. And so the majority of people in cities are not in that very, very small, loud minority. They want low traffic neighborhoods. They know that the data that says air pollution at schools is one of the highest at drop-off and pick-up. Because it's true. It's not. It's, it's empirical data. They're not stupid. So this is what's going to drive the change. The quiet majority, not the loud minority. Is there a challenge to breaking the US with the cities a little bit more dispersed than they are? I spent a little bit of time racing around the US and while the major cities like you know downtown Manhattan is still quite compact akin to London or Dublin, when you get to other parts of the states, the cities are wider spread. And when I think about a Brompton, I do think of it as a city-centric vehicle. Our mission is to create urban freedom for happier lives. It doesn't say bike and it doesn't say Brompton. We're on a mission, urban planning, cycling, walking. We've got to work together to make urban living in all its forms better. And it's entirely doable. And the way you need to think about it is journey time. Most people are happy spending between 35 and 40 minutes traveling to work. Once it gets beyond that, it moves into the, this becomes a bit of a pain. Once it's over an hour, it doesn't matter whether they're walking, whether they're driving at 70 miles an hour down a motorway, or whether they're cycling at 15 miles an hour. It's the time spent getting to and from somewhere. So you just need to look at modes of transport. And we're on a journey. We're not going to fix it overnight. But interestingly, in the US, the electric cap speed is 20 miles an hour, not 15. So you put 40 minutes. Well, that's 20 miles. But you know that's for an hour. And we're talking 40. You know, So you can, let's say, go 15 miles, 14 miles in the US in 40 minutes. You stick a pin in most cities in the US and you do a 14-mile radius, you got it covered. Yep. So then it comes back to the same old infrastructure, safety, creating an environment like they did in Amsterdam where they got rid of the, the four-lane highways and put back canals and made the city for the people that lived in it with spaces to hang out, be with their friends, enjoy life. So there is no one single answer. It is not a Brompton. It's it's so multifaceted. It includes all bikes. It includes walking. It includes design. It includes leadership, politics. And all we can do, because we're going to be dead in a minute, you know, life is short, is do our bit. Not wait for perfection because it'll never come. Just get stuck in and look back and go, we're in a better place than we were before. Maybe it's not the perfect place, but it's better. And that'll do. And keep pushing and not stopping and driving for change. And then we feel we've done our bit. And it's on to the next lot to do their bit. So in terms of doing doing one's bit, what kind of messages would you have for people that feel like they kind of want to do more kind of to lobby for for bicycles and to to kind of like lobby for bicycle change or for city change? Where where have you found 
the most successful fruit, not the mo- lowest hanging or the, you know, whatever, but the most kind of successful fruit in terms of the conversations you have. Should people be writing to MPs? Should people be bothering to talk back in forums online? Um, or should people just be, you know, demonstrating their kind of vote for the future by being on, out on a bike? All of the above. I mean, stick your hand on the tarmac, you know, do whatever you want to do, but be proactive. I think if you are agnostic and then complain, then really you have no right to do so. You've got to engage in some way, shape or form and where and how and what. We need all of the different forms of engagement. It was interesting. We had a debate at our shop to celebrate the millionth bike. And we had some fantastic advocates for cycling um, from really different backgrounds, a team up from Birmingham and a, a team in London. And then Will Norman was there. And what he said was, I really need you to write to your local MP when we put in cycling infrastructure and say, this is cool. We love this because people are very good at complaining. But those MPs need to hear from the not now so silent majority. We need to quash the loud minority with a slightly more vocal, larger minority. And I think that's something that hadn't really struck home to me, but he was so, he kept going on about it really passionately about how important it is for us to say as, as citizens, that's the way we work in the UK and giving positive feedback to infrastructure change gives them the mandate to do more because otherwise it's just the small vocal minority that get heard and that is not what we want. Right. Absolutely. And just wanted to kind of take a slightly different direction now, because I think you're unique in in bicycles from my kind of sport perspective, because as you say, your, you know, your company ethos doesn't even really include the word bike. You're not in it for, for cycling as a sport, certainly, or you, you know, you are a bit, but as you say, you're there to serve them 95% or hopefully the hundred percent to give them mobility. So therefore you kind of come at this from almost like a sort of engineering come political stance so i just wondered what you thought of the direction that we're certainly going let's just call it the uk not even western europe in terms of those kind of big free thinking figures that you know the victorians had loads of them right you had someone like brunel who did Mm. for railways what maybe we kind of need we're almost looking at chris boardman and andy burnham to do for cycling who are the who are the people kind of now that you feel are kind of blazing the way and where do you feel there's gaps, there's blind spots, where, where we're falling short? Well, that's a tricky one. Um, from a political perspective, we've got a slight problem in our makeup that it's like the worst job in the world and the pay is rubbish. So, you know, who on earth wants to go into politics? And that is having a real impact on the caliber. If, if you want the best football team, isn't it funny? They have the most money. You get what you pay for. And for some reason, our politics is, and the job lifestyle and the abuse, and it's just not so good. But the people I have met, by and large, find the idea of trying to build a city around the people that live in it, which is healthier. I mean, it's, it's impossible not to argue with that. And then, you know, you've got architects, and we're touching with some of those, and they're all there. And, and I mean, you've, you, you have got, um, the mayors, Andy Burman, you've got Sadiq, you've got Will Norman. But actually, I think it's sort of, uh, it's a recurring theme that I keep coming back to. But I just think it is the majority that are going to make the difference. 
we're, we're working with architects. We've worked with Lipton. We, we, we've worked with lots of different architects, town planners. There is this movement, and it's not led by anyone in particular. But think about all of the cyclists and what jobs they do and what influence they have. And they might be a road cyclist that does, I don't know, sporty for the weekend. But if they're involved in a a, a, a town planning job, well, they're going to think about cycling in a different way. So I, I don't think there is a silver bullet. And the, biz, the world is far more complex now than it was in Brunel's time. So we won't quite have the same singular people who will transform the world. But I do think this momentum is the urgency and the requirement from a health and global warming perspective is so necessary that it's going to happen and it's going to happen faster and faster. And compound is, is, is a very strong thing. And, you know, we've seen articles in the last week or two looking at cycle usage, overtaking car usage. I mean, that's just one thing that's going to get knocked down. And more will come. More will come. It, it's coming. I think that's an important point, Will. The critical mass plays such an important role in so many directions from as you're saying, if someone cycles, maybe they have a role in town planning. But if somebody cycles, like my parents are more cautious and polite road users because I'm a cyclist. They give space to everyone. So I think critical mass is a way to get us to this utopian place. I'm really excited to see what the next 10 years holds for Brompton. And it's been a fascinating insight. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Absolute pleasure. James, Brompton, are you a convert or you think it's just another hipster like invention like flat whites that doesn't really have a place in our society? Well, there's two things I want to say to that. Number one, flat whites do have a place in our society. Anthony, they're the king of coffees and it pains me to say that because they're invented in Australia and Australia is not exactly known for its coffee, neither is it necessarily known for it being, I don't know, particularly, uh, particularly no, Australia's lovely. But anyway, flat whites are great. Bromptons, no, Bromptons are a fad. They'll never catch on. <laughs> a million Bromptons, a million Bromptons sold worldwide. That's absolutely, nah, nonsense, mate, nonsense. No, I want one. I really, 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 really want it. It's the one bike that I'm actually seriously considering buying. And I'm not saying that because I have loads of bikes, because I don't. And I'm not saying that because we get given loads of bikes, because we always have to give them back. But bikes are really expensive. I've already got a couple, but I feel like a Brompton is a worthy investment. I do think it would change my life slightly. Surely will I give you a Brompton? I mean, that's why we're doing this bit, isn't it? Because we're just hoping he listens to the whole episode and he goes, oh, those guys are so nice. Let's send him a couple of tea lines. That'd be good. Well, that new chat, well, actually, that's what I was going to say in that interview. Didn't want to interrupt, but you're basically half Jeronian. Why haven't you got a David Miller Chapter 3 Brompton? He's your mate, isn't he? He lives down the road in Girona. Yeah, I don't really like the look of the Chapter 3 one. I think Brompton's a kind of cool, iconic brand. I think it's like, I don't like mixing it with something else. I never liked those weird kind of offshoot collab ideas either i think it kind of dilutes the essence of what's cool about the brompton what so you didn't like sort of like ferrari by colnago <laughs> it's just stupid isn't it? i don't know i mean there's a whole podcast in uh in collabs like that but yeah I I'm, I'm sort of with you to a degree but i do i just like the look of that one because it's got tan wall tires so it makes it look pretty pimp and I'd definitely, I'd take any, I'd take any brompton at this stage anyone if you want to send me one just anyone out there's got a spare one I don't think people have spare Bromptons, mind you, but if you've got a spare one, send it me. See, this is what I wonder about the business model on Bromptons. I bought my Brompton 18 months ago. I don't envisage buying another Brompton for the rest of my life because it's so robust. I just can't see why I would need another Brompton. Maybe I move to an electric one 
at some point. Like I will say that anything more than six, seven kilometers, especially I live on the coast. And if you catch a headwind on the coast, six kilometers into the city center, you wouldn't want to be going on a first date. It's a sweaty affair. Like you're working <laughs> hard for that six, seven K. So maybe if you're young, free and single and flicking, swiping right all day on Tinder, electric Brompton could be the job for you there. It could be the job for you. There. Yeah, no, I reckon you're right. But um, I, yeah, I feel like, you know, like um, hair wax or moisturizer, right? They're, if you look at what is in them, the ingredients cost absolutely nothing. And yet the actual price is quite expensive. And the reason they do that is because you're not going to buy a lot of it because it lasts for a long time. And there's also other brands doing it. So what Brompton has is a product which lasts for a long time, like your hair wax that lasts for months and months and months because, you know, to quote friends, obviously use a pea-sized amount, right? But one thing Brompton doesn't have is lots of other competing brands. That's its genius is, yeah, the Brompton that you've got, you'll probably pass on to your grandkids. But at the same time, we've now eclipsed 8 billion people on, on the planet. But only one of them seems to have a really good idea for a folding bicycle, and that's been patented. So they can just keep selling. <laughs> and I think the and this is this goes for lots of uh, things in you know lots of lots of things. That's a good description, isn't it? Lots of stuff, lots of mechanical stuff, high end mechanical stuff. You have got a massive emerging middle class in Asia, in China, and places like that. So you sell bicycles hand over fist and suddenly there's not a million bicycles in Beijing, there's a million Bromptons in Beijing. And I think that's kind of probably how they look at it. So I don't think Brompton's in, in any danger of sort of making a product that's so good it can't sell more of it. They're, they're all going to retire very wealthy people and more power to them. And since this is my last episode, James, I will happily accept the gift of a new Brompton from Cyclist Magazine, happily and humbly accept it. Happily and humbly. Well, I'm going to, you know, probably the amount we've been paying, you could afford to buy several. Run that one up the flagpole to the bosses <laughs> and see, can you send me across one? Well, if I get one, I'll let you know. We can, we can split it. You can have half. They come apart in the middle. James, it's been emotional. It's a small little industry, so I'm sure our paths will cross. Thanks, folks, for listening to me over the past 15 or 20 episodes on Cyclist Magazine Podcast. Thank you, Anthony. It has, it's been a pleasure. It genuinely has. I'll miss you. Chat soon, James. Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. Coming up this fortnight, it's all about Belgium with the Tour of Flanders, E3 Classic and Ghent Wevelgem all broadcast live. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+, including the E3 Classic on the 24th of March, Ghent Wevelgem on the 26th and the Men's and Women's Tour of Flanders on the 2nd of April. Along with all the live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. 
GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens, so you never need to miss a key moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist 15.